0: me to begin. Heavenly Father, we just lift up this time to you. Thank you for our time of worship. And uh, now, Lord, we just direct our attention toward you and and, uh, this specific event in, in history that directly affects us as believers. Father, I pray this morning as we learn about the work of Christian heroes from the past, our heroes of the faith, Lord, that we're reminded that you are at work in history. You are doing a great work and you are still doing that today to preserve your word and to advance your gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Who can tell me What is significant about tomorrow? And I'll give you a hint. It's not that it's Halloween. You can tell me. Tomorrow is Reformation Day, which makes today, the last Sunday in October, Reformation Sunday. Who in here is familiar with the Reformation? Raise your hand. Be honest. That's all right. All right. Few of you. Few of you remember you were here last year, and you remember Brett's brother, Dr. Brewer, coming in and and sharing with us about this important day. But I also realize that there were some of you here who were not here last year and are not familiar with the Reformation, which is good because today we're going to be talking about this significant event in history. Now, before your eyes begin to glaze over. And you think sarcastically to yourself, yay, a history lesson. That's what I came here this morning for. I want you to know that this event is very, very important to us. I mean, how many events can you say happened over 500 years ago that directly affects what we do day in and day out as believers and what we do week in, week out as a church? Not very many, right? But the Reformation does. Therefore, it it deserves our attention. Think about this with me. The reason why you're here this morning at a church like this, and the reason why you have the Bible in your hand that you own in your own language, and the reason why we as a church encourage you week in and week out to study the Bible on your own, And the reason why we come here week in and week out and teach the Word of God and encourage you to take the Word and and apply it to your life, that all comes as a result of the Reformation. That directly affects all of us, doesn't it? Well, how did the Reformation come about? Well, before I... Before we can understand this movement, we need to first understand the man behind the movement. Okay, how many y'all know? Have ever heard the name Martin Luther? Not King Jr., but 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 this Martin Luther here. This Martin Luther, he was around a while, you know, several hundred years before that. Yeah, this is this is Martin Luther right here, and and many of us are are familiar with him to an extent you know we know he's a significant religious leader many of you know that he has a a denomination named after him and uh... some music people even know that he is the one who wrote that famous hymn that was just sung for us beautifully a mighty fortress is our god but beyond that many don't have a clue about who he is and the contributions that he's made. Well before October 31st 1517 few others knew about him but on that day an event took place that would put Martin Luther on the map and would change the course of history. On this day this unknown professor from the University of Wittenberg nailed a writing to the door of the castle church that addressed the issues that he had with the church, with its leaders, and with its practices. Now many think of this as kind of a rebellious act. Man, Luther was a bold man taking his views and nailing them to the door of the church, trying to make a statement. But, but in that day it wasn't the case. That was just customary during the day. The, the, the door of the church in those days served as a community bulletin board. So it was customary when someone had issues, they would would nail those to the door of the church for public comments and discussion. So when Luther wrote what was called his 95 thesis and he nailed it to the door of the castle church, he was simply doing what was customary. He was doing what any professor would do. He was putting forth his ideas for public consideration and debate. Well, little did Luther know that this act would change the world. It would change the course of history. When when Luther nailed his thesis to the door of the church, he ignited a spark that burst into a flame that spread across Europe and is still burning today. And it's the movement we call the Protestant Reformation. Now, if you read Luther's 95 Thesis today, you would probably think that most of his points are out of date and, and obsolete, which, for the most part, they are. Because in, in his day, though he was dealing with issues that were hot topics in the, in the church during his day, these abuses, for the most part, they, they are not seen in the way they were in Luther's day in the church. But there is one of the points that he makes in his 95 Theses that I want to share with you this morning that still concerns us today, and it's number 62. Here it is up on the screen. Luther says this, The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. His point here, Is that the true prize, the true treasure, the valuable, the most valuable possession that the church possesses is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Man, that's what Paul's been telling us, hadn't he, in 1 Corinthians. That's what Luther was saying back in 1517. And that's what the Reformation is essentially all about. It's all about getting back to the core doctrines, the essential truths of the Christian faith, because the church at that time had gotten away from it. Now, how did Luther come to these conclusions? I mean, let's be honest. In 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 this day, there were very few who were taking stances like Luther was. So, So how did Luther come to... The view that the gospel is to be primary while everything else is secondary. How did Luther come to value the scriptures and and the gospel of Christ the way that he did? Well, for the rest of the morning, what I want to do is is I want to share with you Luther's journey and what led him to this here. What led him to reform? Believe it or not, Luther was not always leading religious movements. In fact, in his late teens, early 20s, he was studying to be a lawyer. But all of that changed one night when he was traveling home from school to visit his family, and he was stuck in the middle of a thunderstorm. And in the midst of that thunderstorm, Luther was knocked to the ground by a bolt of lightning. And fearing for his life, Luther made a promise to God, that if he survived the storm, he would give his life to God and become a monk. Well, guess what? He was spared, and that's what he did. He joined the Augustinian monks, and I know that means little to to many of you, but they were a group of monks who were known for being devout. I mean, they took their vows and obligations seriously. Now, there are other monks who did not, but they did. Little did they know at the time that this 21-year-old named Luther who was joining their order was going to become the most devout and one of the most committed monks that the church had ever known. Now let me tell you a little bit about what life was like for a monk during those days because that will give you a little background into, into Luther's early life. Life for a monk in those days, especially in this among these group of monks, the Augustinian monks, it was hard. It was difficult. It involved getting up each morning early, starting your day with prayer and singing. How many of y'all like to wake up early in the morning, five, four or five o'clock, and sing? No. But they did. Followed by a time of meditation, perhaps another time of singing. Then they'd go to breakfast. Then they would would break, and they'd have morning prayers. And then they'd go to work, and they would work hard until they broke for lunch. And then there would come another time of prayer and singing, which, by the way, I like singing, but not this much. And then they would follow with a brief nap, and then there'd be more prayer, more singing, meditation, a time of penance, and then the sacraments, then dinner, then prayer, then singing. Then they would go to bed. Then they'd wake up and do it all again the next day. It was a rigorous and difficult schedule. And these monks, they did this day in, day out, week in, week out. Life for a monk was filled with religious rituals and ceremony. And you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, then why do it? I mean, why put yourself through that? What's the point? Well, in those days... Many became monks because it was taught in the church that entrance into heaven was based upon one's own moral efforts and one's relationship to the church. And, and so it, this was the exact motivation for, for monks like Luther. Many believed it was the best way to to assure a, a relatively brief stay in purgatory and a quick entrance into heaven for all eternity. And because of this, because the monks were so committed, many looked to the monks as being the cream of the crop. They thought of them as being at the height of godliness. I mean, many viewed the monks, especially in this order, the Augustinian monks, as being some of the most devout and most godly of all men. And Luther bought into this lifestyle. In fact, Luther was as religious, if not more so than anyone who's ever lived. And when I use that word religious, and in, in the word religion I'm talking about here, man's attempt to reach God through personal effort and devotion. By, by this definition, Luther was as religious as any. I mean, he tried as hard as anyone to reach God through his own merit. And the reason why Luther was so religious was because he was a restless soul. He had a deep awareness of his own sinfulness and he longed to be forgiven and be made right with God and he truly thought that this could happen through his own personal effort, through his own works. And the reason why he thought his works would cut it was because that's what the church taught at the time. And Luther was so committed to being right with God, he became the monk of monks. I mean, he kept all the rituals. He kept all their schedules. He did everything required of him by the church. But in Luther's quiet moments, when he thought about a holy God, Luther felt something was amiss in his life. And that thought gripped Luther. The thought that there was this God up in heaven who is perfect and righteous and holy just waiting for him to slip up. And that truth right there, it bothered Luther to the core. Because Luther had an understanding, a better understanding of his own sinfulness than the other monks, he lived in terror of God's judgment. Because Luther knew that his works fell infinitely short of God's perfect and righteous standard. I'm going to show you a clip now. This somewhat captures Luther's torment of his... Uh, this sort, sort of captures how tormented Luther was by his own sinfulness. This is taken from the, from the movie, Luther. I my I confess them all. I confess them all. Just leave me. Just leave me. Just leave me. Leave me. Leave me. Leave me. You are too hard on yourself, Brother Marty. Arguing that the devil never does any of us any good. He has had 5,000 years of practice. He knows all the weak spots. I'm sorry about today. I'm not here to scold you, Marty. I'm too full of sin to be a priest. I live in terror of judgment. And you think self-hatred will save you? Have you ever dared to think that God is not just? He has us born, tainted by sin. Then he's angry with us all our lives for our faults. This righteous judge. Who damns us. (laughs) Threatening us with the fires of hell. (laughs) I wish there were no God. Martin, what is it you seek? A merciful God. A God whom I can love. A God who loves me. So as you see here, Luther was deeply distressed by his own sinfulness and the fact that that God is just because he knew he fell short. So how did Luther respond? Like many religious people do, he works harder. I read a biography on Luther's life that said he would fast until the hours seemed unreal and his strength was so far gone that he could hardly move. He would lock himself in an unheated cell and remain there and pray until exhaustion overcame him and the other monks literally had to break into his cell and drag him out. He spent hours upon hours in prayer before the altar of the monastery church until he was literally unconscious on the floor. He also turned to the path of confession. And that day the church taught, if you want to be forgiven of sin, you had to confess your sins one by one. And, and Martin Luther took this literally and seriously. I mean, he would go day after day into the confessional to his priest and he would confess every sin he could remember. Every day. It was said he spent six hours a day confessing sin. Can you imagine that? Have you ever tried to confess every little sin you committed? It's a uh, draining and daunting task. I mean, normally what we do is we'll confess the big sins, right? And, and, and uh, we'll, we'll get those out of the way, the ones that quickly come to mind. But what about every jealous and angry thought? What about every time we have failed to long for God and love God as we should? I mean, it's a, a draining and daunting task, isn't it? If you really wanted to do what Luther did... Confess six hours worth of sin on a daily basis. Think about it. You've got to reach deep inside, don't you? You've got to do a thorough examination of your life, and Luther did just that. He looked to the depths of himself, pinpointing even the smallest of sins to confess. Let me ask you this. Do you think, day in, day out, when Luther did this, that he had peace of mind? Do you think this brought Luther peace of mind? No. No, he felt worse. Because he was faced on a daily basis with how sinful he was before a holy God. He was probably thinking to himself, how can a man like me, who has six hours worth of sin to confess on a daily basis, ever be fit for heaven? Luther saw firsthand that his sins went far beyond what he could confess but he didn't give up. In 1510 and 1511, he traveled to Rome. In those days Rome, uh, a pilgrimage to Rome was like a pilgrimage to Mecca for a monk like Luther. It was where the pope was. It was where the cardinals were. It was where all the great cathedrals stood. So Martin Luther made this trip thinking maybe in Rome I'm going to find what I'm desperately seeking. Well, look at what he found when he arrived. Check out this clip. <laughs> The mother back in The 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 Name of the deceased and relation: Hendrik Luther, grandfather. And now, our father on every step. When you reach the top of the stairs, Hendrik will be released from purgatory and enter the gates of heaven. Name of the deceased and relation: Bothram And Now, father on every step. When you reach the top of the stairs, will be released from purgatory. I do the key I've been The to secret the I'm not What the players The players of The players of all The players of this The of The of The The this The this The The So when Luther got to Rome, he was sadly disappointed. First he was excited, then he was shocked, and then he was sickened by what he saw. What Luther witnessed there was immoral behavior, not just by the citizens of Rome, but by the leaders in the church. I read that when Luther went to Rome, he saw priests there who were, who were so drunk they couldn't even finish the Mass. He found certain priests who have broken their vows of, of celibacy. And, and some even had illegitimate children with multiple women. There was also the clip you saw there of them bowing down and worshiping so-called holy relics. The one you saw him standing in line for was the skull of John the Baptist. And there was a joke among the reformers. Hey, there, there were probably five or six skulls of John the Baptist floating around. But, but, but you saw that there and you also saw in this clip within Rome there was an ancient set of stairs that had been brought from Jerusalem to Rome and Roman tradition taught that these were the steps that Jesus had walked up the night he appeared before Pilate. This was one of the more holy sites in the city of Rome, and the church taught that if you got on your hands and knees, and you said, and our Father on each and every step, by the time you reached the top, you would have released a soul from purgatory. Well, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would come from all around, and they would do just that. They would get on their hands and knees and they would pray for their, their dead ancestors so that they would be released from purgatory. And Luther was one of those pilgrims. Well, Luther, he left Rome deeply troubled. More so than he had ever been in his entire life. All he saw in this so-called holy city was widespread immorality and empty religious ritual that had nothing to do with the righteous and holy God. Well, back in Germany, Luther was troubled, and his mentor, Johann Staupitz, eventually encouraged Luther to go back to school in, in Wittenberg to study to be a Bible teacher. And that decision for Luther to go back to school and study the Word of God was a turning point in Luther's life. 1512, he received a doctorate of theology. In 1513, he began to teach the Word of God. And it was when Luther began to study and to prepare from the Bible, studies from the Bible, that he truly began to understand the Christian faith according to God's Word. His his first set of lectures were through the Psalms. And his great discovery really began there, but developed in 1515 when he began to study through the book of Romans. He later said that the first chapter of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17 was where he discovered the answer to his problems. In this verse, Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness or the justice of God is revealed. Now this phrase caught Luther's attention because in this verse, Paul is saying that the gospel, the good news, and the justice of God are linked. How could this be, Luther thought? For the longest time, Luther thought when he thought of the justice of God, he thought of it as a bad thing. But Paul is linking it to the good news of the gospel. But Luther, he thought if God was perfectly just, then he was in trouble because he was a sinner. In fact, Luther often wished that God was unjust because he knew that a just God would never consider him fit for heaven because Luther knew that he fell infinitely short of God's perfect standard. For the longest time, Luther hated the phrase, the justice of God. But Paul, in verse 17 explains that though God is is just, though God requires perfection through faith in Christ, get this, God gives the righteousness He requires. And that's the awakening that Luther had. That through faith in Christ we can have our sin transferred to Christ and His righteousness transferred to us. It's called the great exchange. And this doctrine changed Luther forever. That's why Paul ends verse 17 by saying, the just, they live by faith. You see, in the monastery, long ago Luther was was partially right. Our works, they won't cut it. But notice, Paul doesn't say here, the just rely upon themselves. He doesn't say the just are the ones who confess sins six hours a day to a priest. No, he says the righteous are those who trust in Christ alone, who place their faith in the Lord Jesus and in Him alone. And Luther said that that teaching, The doctrine of justification, the fact that we're made right with God by grace alone through faith in Christ alone is the most important teaching in the Christian faith. And this doctrine became the focal point of his ministry. Check out this last clip here on Luther's discovery of this key doctrine of the Christian faith. Unforgiving. That's how I saw God. Punishing us in this life. Committing us to purgatory after death. Sentencing sinners to burn in hell for all eternity. Those who see God as angry do not see him rightly. But look upon a curtain as if a dark storm cloud has been drawn across his face. If we truly believe that Christ Is our saviour then we have a God of love so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell tell him this I admit that I deserve death and hell what of it for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf his name is Jesus Christ son of God where he is there I shall be also See, this discovery forever changed Luther. He once said when discussing the, the, the importance of the doctrine of justification that were made right by grace alone through faith in Christ alone with God, this is what he said. He said, without it, without this teaching, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Whoever departs from the article of justification does not know God and is an idolater. If the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. So Luther says here that the church... It stands or it falls on how it views this doctrine of justification, and we stand and or we fall based upon how we view it. Luther considered this teaching to be the heartbeat of Christianity. Understanding this, this doctrine led to Luther's conversion and it made the Protestant Reformation all but inevitable. I once heard a pastor say this, Luther's discovery of justification that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, changed the man who would then change the church, who would then change Europe, who would then change the world forever. Now this change did not come without resistance, did it? No. The church and its loyal followers, they took issue with that word alone. They didn't have issue with the words grace, faith, and Christ. It was when alone was attached to the end of it. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Many did not like this, and the reason why is because the church and its leaders during this day taught that, that it's our faith plus our good works that makes us right with God. And Luther and the other reformers, they strongly and openly disagreed and directed the common people to the Word of God. They actually translated the Bible into the common language, which is the reason why you and I have our Bibles in English today, so that we could read it for ourselves. And they would direct people to the Scriptures, and and they would show people, if you think that your works make you right with God, you are not going to be made right with a holy and just God. They directed people toward the clear teachings in Scripture where God declares people not guilty by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Luther taught you can't come to God by your own power, through your own personal accomplishments you can't be made right with God by bringing something of your own saying look what I've done look how good I am shouldn't this count for something the reformer said no you have to come by faith alone I love the lyrics to the hymn rock of ages that says nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling isn't that great those are great lyrics There's nothing you bring to the table. Christ has done it all for you. There were many then and there are many today who think they have something to offer when it comes to salvation. They say, I'm trying my best to be good. Surely that counts for something. Listen closely when I tell you this. God's word says it counts for nothing. It counts for nothing. Therefore, you have to let go of it and say nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling now this goes completely counter to the way we've grown up right I mean we've grown up hearing the the phrase if you want something done right what you do what You do it yourself, right? And we're also taught that that you're not to put all your eggs into one basket. You're to have a backup plan, a plan B, and a plan C. But get this, justification by faith alone, it says there's nothing you bring to the table. And it says there is no backup plan. There is no plan B. It's nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling I want to end this morning by asking you a simple question. Are you justified? Are you right with God? And if so, what do you base that on? Your works? No. It has to be nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. God has provided a great way, the only way, a perfect way for guilty people like you and me to be made right with Him. He sent His Son to earth to live the perfect life we could never live and die the death we deserve to die so that if we would put our trust in Christ alone for salvation, we can be made right with the holy and righteous and just God. If you've never made that decision, I pray that you would this morning. Let's pray.